1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Recovery. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah Heath, and my co-host is Justin Gentry. Today, we are releasing another one of our conversations from Theology Beer Camp that we did with the incredible folks from Homebrewed Christianity. If you want to get more of this, if you want to hear the fullness of the keynotes and watch the videos, uh, you can go to experiencinggod.net. And it's donation-based. You can give as much as you like to be able to see the fullness of the keynote speakers. And one of them is the incredible Dr. Jennifer Bashaw. So Dr. Jennifer Bashaw is a professor and she is at Campbell University in the Department of Christian Studies. And this conversation, I will say, I talked a lot. I think it's partly because it was from woman to woman. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Justin, thank you so much for piping in every now and then. I think you'll find that this is a helpful conversation as we talk about what does it look like for women to inspire other women? What does it look like to do this work when you feel like you are code switching quite a bit? Truthfully, whether you identify as a woman or not, I think all of us know what it's like to change the way that we sound so that space can be made for who we are. I really enjoyed all of the conversations at Theology Beer Camp, and I really enjoyed all of the keynote speakers. Dr. Bashaw was definitely a highlight. So I hope that you will uh, listen to this conversation. Again, like I said, whether or not you identify as a woman, I think there's a lot to it. And stick around for the end so that you can hear this week's poem. All right, so we're going to get going. So we... What would you like to be called? Because I think it's important for women who are in positions where they've worked really hard to get a doctor in front of their name. Or do you do you have a certain way that you want to be referred to? My students have to call me Dr. Bashaw, but you, nobody here has to do that. Jennifer's fine. Jennifer's fine. <laughs> or Jen, if you want. Okay. Uh, Jen or Jennifer. It is so nice to meet you. So I'm Sarah Heath, and I'm one of the co-hosts of uh, the podcast Rev Covery. So it's for people who used to be professional Christians or who volunteered a long time or who are thinking about leaving ministry who've known a minister, just anyone sort of in that realm. I was someone who was in full-time ministry for 16 years, having graduated from Duke. And so started the story of getting really burnt out, having a faith shift and having nowhere to go. So, and this is... So, hi, my name is Justin. I'm a co-host of the same podcast you just described. I was a minister for 12 years, went to Denver Seminary, you know, went into debt, all of that fun stuff that we do to get an education. And now I don't do that anymore. I'm a project manager now for an educational publishing company working with the state of Florida to try to educate their children. Without using words that they're not allowed to use. Yes. <laughs> so. And also, I think part of that story that's really funny is he got kicked out of the church for being LGBTQIA affirming. And yes. now he's having to like... 
still do that work yes. <laughs> outside and, of the church. And, so in strange ways, yes. We are so lucky that we were uh, kind of, we get the opportunity to ask you questions about what you shared today, but we're also going to take questions from folks out there. I will ask you to speak quite uh, loudly because we will be using this. You, you have a potential to be on a podcast podcast that's listened by at least my parents. Yes. So, and, and mine as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, my mother sometimes cries when she listens to the podcast. Um, she's not quite as... Um, down with the sinister minister. No, but, yeah, no. We you know. we use words that aren't um, pastoral. You may speak freely. Yeah. So speak freely. We're glad to have you here this morning. It was so powerful to hear sort of your story of coming into space as a, as a woman, and sort of can you maybe give some of the highlights of sort of a little bit of your background for our listeners who are listening to this later and didn't get to hear your amazing talk. This is my plug for go check out the amazing talk. Um, can you give a little bit of a background uh, again of your story? Yeah. Uh, so I was raised in a military family and so I moved around quite a bit, but then eventually we settled down in Texas. And so I went, I mean, pretty much from second grade till when I graduated high school, I was in Colleen, Texas, and we went to Southern Baptist churches our whole lives and got a call to ministry when I was a teenager-ish and just didn't really know what to do with that because they said, well, you could be a children's minister we would like or you to could point be out a missionary. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed. I said that. I mean, yeah. neither of those feel right to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I sort of put that on the back burner and then went to Baylor, which... Is back then it was sick and bears. Yeah, sick and bears. It was still a little bit. It was more conservative back then than it is now. And so I ran into opposition there because I didn't say this in my talk, but the yes. night you glad you're in this room. Yeah, this this glad. memory I have is of my boyfriend's roommates sitting me down outside of their apartment in this swing and then they explained to me all the reasons why it would be dumb for me to go to seminary and i i, I said a little bit of that the whole you have to be the head of the uh -huh. church and uh -huh. so since you can't be the head of the household you can't be the head of a church there are all these very interesting ways that they explained it to me and i cried for like three hours after that because i knew they were wrong but I, I i in the moment i couldn't argue with them well enough to shut them up right and so then i just you know walk around baylor campus like what am what am i to do it was it was a big watershed moment for me my favorite one was at a party i was 24 i just graduated from duke with my master's and uh you know my master's in divinity and i'm at this party with a bunch of evangelical boys mm. and one guy decides to tell me he's drunk by the way <laughs> uh decides decides and he had been hitting on me the minute before i feel like all of this is important background and he decides to tell me why i can't be a pastor and i pretended it was the first time i'd heard it <laughs> because i was like i i could go into how i just wrote a thesis about this or i could just stare at you and be like what I just got a degree in this. Someone just hired me. What do you mean I can't do this? The best. Wow. wow. Yeah. Thank I know, you for that was the day. That was the day that I said, I will learn Greek and Hebrew. Yes. And I will figure out why they're so wrong. And so it just made me want to go to seminary. But when you go to a Baptist seminary, they, they, they train you well. And then when you graduate, there are no jobs for you. <laughs> like not in Texas Baptist land, right? Except unless you want to be a children's minister or assistant youth pastor, which is what I was. So then I decided to take the academic route. And people are so shocked when I say it was easier to take the academic route than to try to be a woman pastor in a Baptist environment. Drink that in, guys. Yeah, that's fact. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, sad when our fallback is to get a PhD because I actually experienced that too. I'm like, maybe it'd be easier <laughs> if I just got my PhD. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but it doesn't, it doesn't work magic after that because when I, at the end of my PhD, I was tired of academia and I said, I think I'm going to try to be a pastor. And I would, you know, send out my resumes and they're like, well, you have a higher degree than our senior pastor, so we can't hire you as an associate pastor, but you don't have any experience as a senior pastor. <laughs> So it was just like, nah, never mind. Your <laughs> academic pedigree may make our senior pastor look bad. Yeah. So I'm you're, sorry. You're making us uncomfortable. I don't use yeah. SAT words or anything like that. So, well, And I, I find that really fascinating that you even bring that up as a, it, you know, we, we joke around about the sort of it's almost code switching where you learn how to make men feel comfortable with your academia, mm-hmm. to be able to be approachable. And, and I remember the moment I thought, wow, I've never thought about this. But as a pastor, when you're a woman and you, you preach at a church, some folks, like my very first church I ever preached at was here in North Carolina. And my director of field ed got a phone call. And he said, she's absolutely brilliant. And he was like, awesome. We sent, him, sent her to you. So thanks. And he's, he said, I just want to ask why you didn't call me when the the man who we sent last week preached, preached. And he's like, oh, no, he was brilliant. I was just so shocked because she's cute. And um, what he did was kind of chatted with me about this idea. He's like, you have to package it in such a way that, and it's, I, I hope it's getting better in academia, in the, in the church world, to sort of where you're like, I don't want to be intimidating. Yeah. And we're small women. I'm wearing big shoes. That's my, that's how I get around. <laughs> and so can you talk a little bit about what that's like even in academia now? Cause you shared a bit that you're like, my students call me doctor. Is that partly because of that? I feel like I'm pushing you into answering here, but go. <laughs> yeah. So I like what you said about code switching, but I, so what I got tired of actually code switching between sort of academic language and church language. And so I just chose church language because it was, I was going to be, I mean, even though I am not, at a church, I pulpit supply and I, all, all the students in my class are from like Baptist backgrounds and Methodist backgrounds. So I just, I'm, I'm just going to speak church language. And so, and, and, and I like, it's fine. I grew up with it. Right. But I think it does make me less threatening, um, in, in all environments in an academic environment and a church environment. Uh, I smile a lot. You know how people always like tell women to smile. This is just my normal way of being. And so then I, I just, I'm not as threatening to, to a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I do need to point out though, that for men in the room, that both ahead, of these ladies, that to us, well, well, no, that both <laughs> of these ladies like have to create a persona that is not threatening in order to be taken seriously. Whereas most of us guys and most of us have known that male pastor that prides themselves on being threatening. (laughs) Mark Dissel. And how grossly unfair that is for one, but also like the consequences and the stakes are much higher. Like if someone doesn't like a aggressive pastor, well, we'll just tune them out. If someone doesn't like an aggressive woman in a space, that is a very dangerous thing to be. And so I just want to point out that like this, this is like kind of a tee hee hee, like we have to do this, but no, this is a serious thing that, that as men as well, you have to be aware of and also work against. If you are ever on a pastoral search committee, if you are ever on any kind of board that hires people, 
being aware of like, oh, isn't that neat that she's cute? Like, well, was the guy cute too? <laughs> like, are we going to comment on his shoes and his smile as well? Like, and if you are, great, good, do that. <laughs> like, we should all be complimented on how we look. I'm not saying don't ever do that, but just, just be, a- be aware of the venues and how you're evaluating people because that there are, the stakes are incredibly high. And I think it's true too for our uh, non-binary friends who also enter in spaces yes, where absolutely. there's assumptions about how to be and not be. And um, even when I travel with my other co-host, Kevin Garcia, when we travel to certain places, there is code switching. So like when we went into North Carolina one time for an event, um, I was like, what are you doing? Dressing butch. I was like, okay. He's like, we're going to go into gas stations in North Carolina. It's not something that we ever think about. However, I will say, as women who step into academia, you think about how you dress. Oh, the dress part. Yeah, especially in Baptist spaces. So Yeah, I cannot tell you. I guess I thought everybody did this, but I go through several outfits in the morning just to say, okay, so do I, am I showing any cleavage? Right. Is there a little too much, you know, form fittedness to what I'm wearing? And, but then you also like, you, there's, they also will also judge you if you look dowdy right. or something. And so I have to like fit in this little space, you know, now my whole closet is in that space, but so I can, I can, I can wear things pretty well every day, but it is, um, it's a process. It's a weird thing to think through. And I, I, I remember when Hillary Clinton was running for office, I had sat down and was watching the news or whatever. And one thing was talking about how she doesn't smile enough. Mm. And then another one was talking about like, this, this is literally what they're talking about as a candidate, the debate. It wasn't wow, that was a really great point. It was like, she's really got to work on smiling. And then literally there was a creepy red man behind her, like just yeah, glaring. Bear in mind her like, opponent was not was the not smiling at picture of right. But masculine I, physique. I'd never thought about that or like they said she shouldn't wear pantsuits because then that was mm-hmm. too aggressive. But then if she wore anything else and she was trying to be too feminine, it's this whole balance thing that then when we bring into how do we see God in that space, you sort of touched a little bit on experiencing God as a, a woman called to ministry who's been told you're not called by two dudes sitting on a swing who just, that was so nice of them to explain that for you. <laughs> How did your relationship to that call? Mm-hmm. Can you mind talking a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I am really thankful. You could tell for the women in my life. And even if they didn't have the titles or whatever, I saw how they, how they showed the love of Jesus to people around them. And I said, okay, I want to be like that. And then when I got to seminary and I had some women professors and I saw how they taught, I'm like, okay, yes, I want to be like that. You know, and you just kind of have to find those, those people who have been trailblazers, you know. But the interesting thing about trailblazers in academia is that they had, the, the ones in our, the generation before us, they, they really had to be male, in their roles. Like they had to appear so masculine in order to do what they were doing, the glass ceilings that they were breaking. And so even though I had those role models, I also was like, I don't want to do that either. Like I, I, you know, so I, I think, I think I've figured out my place, but I know that I've also been so shaped by it. My personality has been so shaped by it that I can't, I can't separate my experience of life from who I've become. Yeah. So, yeah. I think, too, I'm wondering, I think about your students, mm-hmm. right? So uh, representation and embodiment, right? Like when we see something, then we can imagine it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that pressure, I know for me, uh, I almost stayed in for so long because I knew that for 
Like my favorite story about leaving my church is that a little, one of the children's pastor came up and they're like, Hey, um, you've got to come in the hallway. Cause they had announced that a guy was replacing me. And this little girl was inconsolable in the hallway. And the teacher was like, what's going on? And she said, we can't have pastor John. He's a boy. He's how is he going to be a pastor? He's a boy. And she was like, what? <laughs> right. So they had only ever had that framework. And I think that was so important. Do you feel that pressure at, at all as you're sitting in front of um, folks who might go down the same trail as you to teach or be part of it? Yeah, I feel that pressure all the time and I've, I've succumbed to it. And so there are good things and bad things about that. But my very first job was in East Texas at a university, at a Baptist university. And I went to the interview because I, it was my first interview out of, you know, after my PhD. And I said, I'm just going to go. There's no way I will teach here. And I got there and there were some students who came up to me, young women, and said, we've never seen a woman preacher before. We've never had a woman professor in this department. And I was like, oh, God, I have to be here. What? And I, I accepted the job and it was hard. It was a hard job. I'm, I'm still glad I took it because they did, they really had never seen women in that space. And so that and then also the I, all the time. I may be the only women pastor anybody ever sees. Right. So I put a lot of pressure on myself when I go. I go to these little Baptist churches, rural Baptist churches in North Carolina and preach a lot. And so I prepare like crazy, you know, because I know there there is that idea that some girl might be able to understand her calling because she hears me preach or some other men might change their mind about women pastors if I do a great job, right. you know, so... I have, yeah, I've succumbed to that. <laughs> I don't think any of us haven't. I think any uh, woman who's led anything or someone who's um, female appearing or those who are maybe not your um, stereotypical Justin um, have had that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've I had fit that the stereotype. Of, I get it. I've had that sense of like walking in a room and feeling like I'm not just doing this for me, but for everyone who comes before me. And after me. And after me. Yeah. Yep. yeah there is a lot of pressure in that. Mm-hmm. I love hearing we don't often hear about people who are in academia having that sense of this is my calling. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that teaching is that embodiment of what you felt like was, you know, tiny you reading on your own. I just love that image of nerdy. You just reading the Bible for the heck of it. Do you feel like that kind of lives out of it? Do you feel like it's a kind of a breathing, moving calling? What do you think? Yeah, I think I have a, I've always sort of articulated it this way. I have a dual calling because I do know that teaching is sort of who I am. It's, it's what I do well. And also I've always loved the church and I've always wanted to serve the church. So I have both of those callings and at various times in my life, I've, I've chosen one or the other, but now I, I teaching is where I'm at. And then I just try to pulpit supply and, you know, teach Sunday school at my church. And I work with rural pastors to kind of help them, think differently than the way they've been trained. And so, yeah, I have this dual calling and I'm really fortunate to be able to do both of those things. We have a lot of listeners that are in ministry or thinking about getting out of ministry mm-hmm. or have already, you know, gotten out of ministry because of mm-hmm. burnout or, or hitting those kind of stained glass ceilings. As you transitioned into academia, what maybe would you say to them if they're feeling like I'm not done with the church yet, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking about academia? Mm-hmm. What is 
some advice, some steps. How has it changed since when you first got in? And wh what would you say to them that are that are kind of feeling that, like, I, I want to stay, but I'm not sure how I can stay. Is this a route for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be really honest. It's rough out there. It's so rough in academic circles. And so when if my students come to me and even say, I'm thinking of getting a PhD, mm. If you straight frozen, you're like, conceal, don't feel. Conceal, I, <laughs> don't feel. I say, don't <laughs> do it. And unless I'm talking to a student who's represents a, a, a people group that is not in academia right now. Yeah. Like, I, I do tell them, like, you should go because your voice needs to be heard. But sorry out there, white guys, I don't tell my white male students that they need to get PhDs. How, how, that's, how dare that's you? Okay. That's the real. Does. The world does. It's yeah, fine. fine. And they don't need it anyway. They but it's hard. It. <laughs> yeah. as, as the representative white male, a platonic ideal, if you will, of someone plucked right out of Northern Europe. So tall. Europe, Look at this guy. Um, yeah. it's, we're, we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be fine. Good. Yes. What was I going to say about white males? <laughs> Wait, go for it. And this this, is the, this we is... can turn this into a roast or like, I'm fine. <laughs> And it's fascinating, too, because I think um, even the people who were so supportive of me moving into these spaces, there is that sense of, like, you're the unicorn. You need mm. to keep going. And we don't realize what pressure that puts on someone. Um, because in some ways, tokenism of, of that, whether whatever your identity reason that, they, that people are like, oh, it would be so good for you to be in that space. There has to be some sort of level of self-care and protection. So I'm imagining you driving back from that event you just did in a, in a rural town, mm -hmm. having had all that pressure that like, you guys know the Sunday nap. If you've ever worked in a church, been to a church, there's nothing like the Sunday nap. You can't replace it. If you leave ministry, I need you to consider that you will never sleep like you sleep on a Sunday nap. But if you're coming back from all of that exhaustion, how are you doing? You know, we hear self care a lot, but what are you doing to make sure that you're not burning yourself out for being that sort of representation in all those spaces? Mm -hmm. No pressure. Everyone needs to know the answer. I'm just kidding. This is not my number one strength in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I don't know if you guys like Enneagram. I know a lot of people don't. A lot of people in that cult. Actually. I'm yeah. a two. Oh. And so I give and I help and I do and I can't say no to anything. So <laughs> I'm not the best person to, to talk about, talk to this about, except that I put practices into my life, even if they're short, to give me breaks. So I love reading fiction, you know, and just laying on the couch and relaxing and hanging out with my kids. And so I try to do something like that every day. And fortunately, I'm an extrovert, so I don't get drained by people. So me saying yes all the time isn't the kiss of death for me. But to talk to everybody out there who's not an extrovert, like you need your introvert time. So please take, please take that introvert time. I get it. I'm a, we, we do talk about Enneagram quite a yeah. bit. I'm a three with a two wing, but my, my two is quite aggressive. So we joke that I'm going to love you the best. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a three wing. So yeah. you, <laughs> I am going to love you. <laughs> Just watch me love you. Yes. Just wait. <laughs> if it sounds unhealthy, it is. It's absolutely unhealthy. Yeah. <laughs> I think self, self care and self sort of recharging is another thing to talk about within if you're an extrovert, you do get filled in. I'm an introverted extrovert. So I actually 
I, I lived as an extrovert for so long, right? That was my job. I was a professional extrovert. And then I would just be like, and I had an assistant who used to say, you've peopled too much. Because she's like, your eyes are dead. <laughs> like, you're like, And I think it's helpful for what you just said for folks to figure out what is your way of refilling to rego, whether it's in academia or you're in ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is your actual way yeah. of recharging? Because I think mm-hmm. particularly in ministry, if you're not an extrovert, you become one. And if you're not, you know, a certain a way of being, you are pressured to become that. And if you conform to that, then you are rewarded. So like we, we're all, we're all primates at the end of the day and we enjoy having a place in the tribe and in the, in the pack. And so when you're continually rewarding for being something you're not, you eventually start becoming that thing. And so I think a lot of folks that are our listeners are finding now that I've gotten out of ministry, like, wow, I actually am an introvert. I, or I actually, maybe I'm not an Enneagram, you know, whatever three, but maybe I actually am, you know, something different. And, and they're actually doing studies of, of soldiers that have been in war, which is funny that I mentioned like soldiers in war and ministry, like, cause I feel like this, they're not, well, the degree I, is very different. I'm not equating, but it's, you feel very much like I am on all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, Usually it, it we never say, ends. and we realize that when we ask people about their time in ministry, it sounds like we're asking about prison. Like, yeah. how long did you serve? Yeah. How, <laughs> how long were you in what for? What were you in for? <laughs> like, it's like, like, you know, usually, it, and it ends up being, I was, I was in to impress my family. Yeah, like that's, yeah. that was my sentence. But, but finding that like once people get out of those very stressful environments, that their Enneagram number flips, their personality yeah. flips, their Myers-Briggs, whatever you call it flips because they were putting on a mask and, and men do this too. This isn't just, you know, this is, this is all people that are in these places that require a certain amount of conformity Mm. and, and being aware of that. And if you're a super volunteer in church, like that's, you know, that's, I always want to shout out to my super volunteers because the church wouldn't function without them. And they usually do more work than the pastor or they're doing their job. And, you know, this part-time job on top of it, Mm. making the church function. And, and being aware of the ways that you have shifted your personality and shifted who you are and, and shifted. And because when you are finally able to recharge, sometimes it can feel guilty. Like, Oh, I shouldn't be an introvert, but I am. Oh, I really love this alone time. Yeah. And I found that too. Like I, my Enneagram is uh, seven wing six, but I'm more introverted than what most people imagine that is. And so I'm like, I'm performing. I'm the youth pastor. I'm bombastic. I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. And then I get home. It's like, I, want to just watch TV and become a vegetable for a little bit. Like, and that's not, and there's nothing bad about that too. Like that is, that is, that is how I recharge. And then I'm able to go back out into the world. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast. We talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Well, Jim, we're so grateful. And we know that folks came here and they, they didn't know. You guys don't know which podcasters are interviewing. They're switching us around all weekend. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no. pleased. It was you. <laughs> what uh, does anyone have any questions that you're just like this? Is, and we can edit it out if you're like, I 
I don't love the way I answered that. Okay, um, <laughs> Trip, do you hear me? We can edit that out if there's anything. Um, I don't speak on my feet very well. Did you notice I had a manuscript up there? <laughs> proud of you. I am going to let you an- ask a question. I'm going to reframe it into the microphone, kind of like you do with prayer requests. Um, o- <laughs> only, only so that our listeners that may not be able to hear you, depending on what the room catches up. So I'm sorry if it's a a little bit of a weird in person, but we're all, we've all done this. We've done stuff that both in live and remote. What was your question that you'd like? So the question is really what are resources or ways of helping us kind of shift our mind into using and understanding more the idea of God within the feminine. So instead of giving you another book to read, but I will give you one book to read. (laughs) I will just tell you to go back and read the Bible looking for where the women are and where the feminine images of God are. Because I don't know if we it's trained out of us or something that we we skip over it. And so even just going back and reading through the gospels and notice where the women show up, like I, like I said, and, and, and it's not all good because it's, of course, the Bible's written in a very patriarchal context, but sometimes the Bible pushes against its patriarchal context. And so I think that's very helpful. I love this book. It's, o- it's only talking about women in the Old Testament, but, or the Hebrew Bible, but the name of the scholar is Tikva. Frimer Kinsky, and she's a Jewish scholar. And I think the name of her book is Reading the Women of the Bible. And she just gives you so much insight into the women in the Bible and then their lives. So I like that one. But then if you're thinking of like a broader, sort of more theological way to imagine the feminine divine, there's a kind of a recent book that came out called, I think it's called God is a Black Woman by Mm -hmm. Christina Cleveland. And I think that is, is it, 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 switches something in your brain when you read it, you know? Um, and so that's one I would recommend in a more theological sense. But I think just going back and looking at what has been glossed over in the way that God's described as a woman and then the, the women in scripture is, is helpful. I think I recently heard someone challenge, uh, Hey, just for a week, if you are someone who prays, refer to God with female language and then someone pushed back, well, can't we use, uh, you know, non-gendered language? And I think it was, I don't want to say who I thought, I think it was because sometimes I misquote people, but they pushed back and said, here's the deal. We got to get to where we can even, like, if you say they, then your brain might go to the masculine because you have to remember we've been trained to do this, right? Like our brains have been trained to think through this. (laughs) As Grace said really well last night, guys, I'm so sorry I gave her that drink. (laughs) It was my drink she took a sip of the whole time I was like, I did that. (laughs) But, and if you're listening to this later, I may have given an incredible scholar just a sip of my drink. It wasn't that strong. I'm Canadian. Uh, It affected her differently than it affects my DNA. So there was this this idea, though, that in order to get to even being able to understand God is non-gendered, we almost have to go to the extreme Mm -hmm. so that... We can, I think it was Dr. Will Gaffney, I'm pretty sure, so that we can get them back to sort of that. Does that make sense? So to go, and, I, and that's yeah. like a personal practice thing that it was really challenging. Yeah. yeah. yeah just in your, in your prayers. And there's, I, I can't give you a liturgical book right now, but I know there's a book of liturgy that has mostly uh-huh. feminine language for God. And that would yeah. be something to incorporate into your sort of every everyday reading. There this, I went to a conference and they had a, a woman's Bible. And, um, and I was like, oh, 
you know, and it was my publishing house that has published my books and they had the, a woman's Bible and I was like, Oh, great. And the woman looked at me, she goes, no, it's written by all female scholars. And I was like, what? She's like the whole, she's like, we made it look all cute. So that like women who are joining for their little women's groups would buy this thing. And then they get in there. It's literally all female scholars. Is it the CEB woman's yeah. book? Yes. Yeah, I recommend that. Like, this is actually that really good. That. And That's I an I inception felt bad. nonsense going on. Like, yeah. Right. But then I felt really yeah. bad because I actually said, this is actually really good. And the woman was like, that's the most backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that question because I think people were wondering that. So thank you so much. Anyone else have a... Yeah. As I reframe this, Kenny, I'm going to make an assumption that you live within a masculine framework within your home. Yeah, so your family. Okay, so uh, a masculine embodied person was sharing with us that uh, has three children, two of which are um, daughters, and sort of asked the question of what might I be doing as a parent that in a way sort of makes God into the masculine. I think the thing, I don't know if I can tell you what you aren't doing or aren't, but I think what, what you can do is that when you are sitting and watching television and there's so many masculine images for God and watching TV just in the background or whatever, it's say something about, well, we know God is not a man, you know, like even just countering all the images we get and the wording we get in, in churches. I mean, going to a church that uses feminine language for God would be a, a great thing. So it's not necessarily something that you, you're like, oh, I'm doing something horrible. Um, but just think about the positives. Like, what are the things that I can do to give them um, different ways of speaking and thinking about God? And so I think that would, that would be really helpful. I'm going to over-explain this, which is, um, <laughs> I had an all-male staff, so I used to always say when I was mansplaining them, I was over-explaining, is the question really, as you're going to these rural spaces, is there a sense that the unifying thing that's holding them together within these communities, like little communities, often is their vision of God, who God is, what God thinks about them, where they're headed, and so when you start to pull those threads, is your fear that you're sort of like, pulling the thread and then sort of like, good luck, like pulling apart the things. Right. <laughs> yeah, Have like, fun. God is a woman, drop the mic, God walk out. Like, <laughs> I love that God is a woman. <laughs> yeah, so I, I tend to work within their framework in a way that I'm not going to, you know, drop the mic, God is a woman or anything like that. Um, what, I t what I like to do is do first-person sermons from the perspective of women in the Bible. And so then they are hearing voices of the voices of women in the Bible that they love so much, right? Um, and I'm not hitting them upside the head with it. And so you got to think of it as planting seeds. Um, and I, and I, optimistically, I, I think there's more than just their, their shared idea of God that that's pull, holding them together. It's like, love and experience and, you know, living around each other. So even if the threads start coming out, I think there's something, you know, strong enough there that, that they'll be okay. But it is nice to ha get to come in and kind of do what I want to do and be like, okay, I'll maybe never see you again. <laughs> like, they don't, they can get mad at me if they want to. Um, I'm not their pastor. So that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I think that's good though, to be able to be able to be in that more like prophetic role. If you want to yeah. cut, like I'm able to call stuff out that yeah. your pastor can't cause he has to live with you or she or she, sorry. See, I do it too. Sometimes yeah. like they have to live in this space and they have to be a lot more careful when they rock the boat because yeah. they're in that boat. That's right. But you can invite somebody that's outside of the boat to be like, Hey, let's, let's mm -hmm. maybe think about something in a way that is 
that they're going to receive differently. So I think that is that is a very good role. I I wish we could bring more of that back because I think in American church we've made the role of the pastor to be all of those things, and so in some ways it diminishes all of them as well because the pastor, like, okay, the person that writes my paychecks is also the person that I have to challenge every week, uh, which becomes not even in a sinister way. It's just a, it's just the way of incentives work. Like I end up giving them what they want to hear over and over and over again. So having someone coming in from the outside, if you're ever part of a church, bringing more of that in can change the dynamic of your church in ways that maybe you're not considering. So I think that's, that's very good. You thing. know what I also do is sometimes churches um, bring me in to teach hermeneutics on like Wednesday nights. And that's really good because I can yeah. like, change the way they look at the Bible. And then again, be gone. <laughs> I I love that image. I think, uh, I don't know why this popped in my head, guys, uh, but I was thinking about, I got asked to come and speak to a group of people who are really ready to think differently in the world. Okay. Um, and so, because they wanted to meet a female who was ordained and this is in Southern California, predominantly evangelical spaces, guys who went to Biola and their wives. And I do mean that. And, um, but these are like really powerful, wonderful women and, and men, but I'm on my way there and just thinking, my friend said there'd be good wine. I can do this. Like, so I show up, they're all there to hear this like really profound, you know, women can speak. I'm ready to accept this. And this guy said to me, I'm, I'm all in, like, I'm all in. I just have a difficult time not thinking of God as a man. And I was like, I just would love to know why God has to have genitalia for you. And he was like, what? And I was like, well, when you say that, you're like literally assuming that what does God do with said genitalia? And it was so funny because someone was like, did she just say God has a penis? And literally I was like, I actually did. Cause you actually did. you, sir, are the right. one that said God has a penis. Right. And so then that, that like, just, that's what happened around the room. Like, wait, the thing that I it was pulling the thread, right? Cause you're not, you're doing the Jesus thing, which is so annoying where you just asked a question when someone wanted an answer, but it's so good. Cause it, helps people get to their own thing. And then they're using their own language. They're figuring through why that's a problem. His buddy sitting down asked me, you're going to love this is the next one was again, I'm like super, I'm really seeing why your voice and why you as a woman, it's like really important for people to hear. I could, I think I could have you as my pastor, but how do I, and his wife is sitting right beside him. How do I like explain to my wife, like if you and I are going and having lunch and I'm sharing with you my spiritual struggles, like how do I explain that to my wife? And I said, well, you probably want to explain to your wife why she should be concerned that you're having sex with everyone you're eating lunch with. Like what is happening mm -hmm. for you over barbecue? So you're talking about the <laughs> Billy Graham rule. Now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have, that has been invoked on uh, me before. <laughs> and when you for think sure. about that, it's that again, that thread pulling where I'm, I don't think every time he goes to share something close spiritually with someone in a public setting, right. by the way, I like barbecue is great. I'm not, it's not like, you know yeah. what I mean? And so I think it's just, I love that idea of just sort of getting people to use their own narrative, yeah. but you shock them a little bit, which is nice. <laughs> I mean, again, two glasses of really nice wine. Um, and then I was later days, um, but it's been really fascinating how even those conversations years later, those guys will be like, oh, I was in that room. Where you said, God, I said, I didn't say it, that I asked a guy and then he said it. Mm -hmm. But I think there is that, also that fear of, I don't want to take it all from you. Right? And so I think one of the things that I want to say that I feel like Verm would agree with me is that I love the way you, you love the church and yet you won't let it stay. You're like, mm -hmm. 
you know, because sometimes it's like, again, the church is terrible, we're run away from it. And that's where some of our listeners are, and sometimes I am. And so I, I love this idea of sort of that narrative of like, no, I'm going to stick around and see what I can do within it. Does anyone else have any questions for our incredible scholar? Yes. Okay, so you guys, this is going to be a fun one to explain to our listeners. So <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat seeing how you're going to summarize this. I cannot this. wait. Jen's work has been done. And I've heard you described as the one person who made Gerard, who is a, a, a theologian, for folks who don't know, or as I like how you put it, a dead French guy, um, <laughs> who said a lot of really great things. And uh, But it could be really complicated. It feels really complex. It's about um, that. And so how do you sort of uh, boil it down a little bit and then the intersection with also liberation theology? Is that a helpful? Yeah. I hate to do this, but I do think that um, you should read my book. <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> but so what meant to, to me, what, how we can make Gerard, <laughs> right, how we can make Gerard more understandable is like, what I do is put him in the Bible. Like we're going to talk about exactly how his perspective changes the way that we look at the Bible. So then we're not getting all into all the mimetic stuff and the stuff that gets really confusing. And the I'm not a philosopher, the, the anthropology and the philosophy. No, we, we're going to say, how does this make a difference in the way we read this text? And he was a literary critic. So, you know, that, that, that was what he was first. Um, and so I think I don't that, think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was first a historian, mm. then a literary critic, and that was what he was for a long time. And then he gets into all. So you're saying he didn't have one purpose for his life? He was not a purpose-driven no. person. No, no. He was not weird. You can be know, multiple things in your lifetime. Wow, really? Weird. Wow. Yeah. So I'm trying to think. Who, like, it really is hard for me to tell you someone who writes on Gerard that's understandable. Not <laughs> yeah. That's literally the thing that people say all the time when they're like, "Jen's amazing. She takes this huge, complex thing and boils it down to something that makes it pal- pa- not palatable, like able to be comprehended." And I think yeah. that's accessible. Accessible. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. That's great. <laughs> uh, make sure to check out the link in the show notes yeah. that we'll have where you can get yourself the book. Anyone else have any questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you uh, as kids, well, I get them when they're 18, and so I, it's right out of their childhood. Um, some cling harder than others. And this is what I've noticed, that it's the hardest when they're getting it at home and at the church. So I have, you know, students come in who are getting it at the church, but their their parents are, like, helping them explore different ways to think about God, or they're open-minded, and then I'll get some that their parents are kind of strict, but they're not in a church that's doing that. But when they're in both, then it's really hard. And so I would encourage, how yeah. would I encourage you to do? Pick a church well, <laughs> right? But sometimes it takes gaining their trust for a long period of time. So maybe over several semesters or something. And then they realize I really do love God. And sometimes I'm going to call God. She, and that's okay. You Mm -hmm. know, so, but it does take time um, to do that. There are some new resources coming out for children and I'm not going to book of belonging. I think it's what it's called. And And that's with them. Mariko. Oh, yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Last uh, name. I know. Okay. And there's also... What oh, is God no. like? Yeah, there's what is God like. Is a good I, one I have God. a story about that one after you guys are done. Uh, yeah. but. And I think that book of belonging is coming out soon. And so that's at least a resource to help you with children. Yeah, there's a couple resources that are coming out. There's a, a Magnolia. Not Magnolia. That's not what I want to say. There's different resources. Oh, the Dandelion Project, which is where oh. people can upload their um, Sunday school curriculum 
that is more progressive and then you can download it. So if you're a more progressive teacher who's probably not getting paid to do the like hard work you have to do to like translate. Y'all ever done a VBS and you're like, Jesus dies on Thursday again and they have yeah. to put their stuff on the cross and then a little five-year-old is saying, what did I do? Oh, we have to use the magic paper that yeah, burns up and we light it. Always like, ask yeah. your church what curriculum they're using. Yes. That's another yep. thing and... Most of it's trash. Yeah. So yeah, I want to recommend the Dandelion Project. And there's also, there's a box actually. If you're, we're talking more rural areas. I think that's, that's a big question as well. Cause you said, choose your church wisely. If there's like three options, you kind of have to decide. So then do we, how do we work this? And so there's a bunch of really great, uh, there's like the family fun box or I forget what it's called. Yeah. I I can't remember, but like the Dandelion Project, it's, it's relatively accessible financially speaking for the most part. Um, I know the book, what is God like, which is, is still, it's in target still, you know, which is great. Um, like I, I, just my experience of, I read that book to my five-year-old, um, recently and like, maybe I'm imagining, I'm not imagining it. This actually happened. Like the way her breath caught, when I flipped over the page and it was like all the pictures of, of God as, as a woman, like was this like very powerful moment for me. Like it, you're still getting like, tears. I am. I am like it. It's cause I mean, I'm unchurched now. I'm mostly out of the church, but I still want my kids to have an understanding of the divine. Cause, cause this is the sad thing. And like when they become teenagers, uh, terrible churches will be trying to recruit them to youth group. So and I they feel have like laser they, tag. Uh, and they have laser tag and I want to go dad. Like, so I want them to have an understanding of the divine. Like, even if um, it's not necessarily part of our life now. So like that was this amazing moment for me. So finding those little moments that you can have that. Cause my, my nine year old sometimes will argue with me that no God is a man. Like, no, trust me, honey, this is a progressive house. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and so, and, and she'll come around for sure. My, my oldest daughter who's nine wants to be a, a pagan. So like, that's what we're, we're a very eclectic <laughs> household. So, which is fine. I don't, I don't, whatever she decides to do, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Like she's seeking the divine feminine. and She just doesn't feel like she mm-hmm. can find it somewhere um, in like a church setting. And so it's, I'm wrestling through that just with them just generally and trying to guide them to be like, God is this expansive thing and God is not just this one label, this one gender, this one kind of thing. So just that very cheap, you can get it from Target, like created this moment from with my child that is, yeah, it's just in my head that she was just like, wow, this this God is much bigger than, than just like the, the creepy guy on the cross, like in children's classrooms, like, I'm sorry, like Mm -hmm. it's weird. It is very weird. I think Um, it's allowing kids to um, feel that I can, question without mm-hmm. being, you know, the, the fear yeah. of adults, right? So I think kids are much more creative about who God is than we are. One of my favorite stories, and this is from a TED talk I heard, and we can kind of close with this. And with um, There was this little girl drawing frantically in the corner and the teacher walked over and asked, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, oh, we don't know what God looks like. And she said, yet. Give me a minute. (laughs) And I think that's Uh, the thing is they all have this divine or, or playful idea maybe. And so what do we look like to ask them? What do you think God's like? How, you know, cause, cause then that's how you get the 22 year old is like pretty sure he has a penis. Like, right. So you have to like, mm -hmm. let them sort of have that, that, that play. And so I'm so grateful for you, what you're saying when you're 18 and you're sitting and I'm so glad people get to encounter you as a, as a teacher and as a preacher and thanks for living out the call and for giving even our recovery folks a little bit of hope in the church. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you both.
Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank yeah, you. Thank You're you. an amazing audience. Yeah, so wonderful. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show, as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com RevCovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Recovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Friends, thanks for sticking around for another episode of Recovery, And thank you so much for the way that you are a community that makes up Recovery. I am blown away every week as I see the conversations in Discord, as I hear more and more about folks who are helping take care of each other um, through the process of whatever Recovery looks like for you, whatever transition you're stepping into. It makes me uh, feel so much joy to know this little podcast that we created has helped people move through some difficult times. So thank you for that. Obviously, going along with the theme of what it looks like to identify as a female within some difficult spaces, I wanted to use a female poet uh, this week for our ending poem. And so this is Rupi Carr. I don't know if you know her. I've just recently discovered her. Her work is beautiful. This is from her book, The Sun and Her Flowers. I stand on the sacrifices of a million women before me, thinking, what can I do to make this mountain taller so the women after me can see further? Legacy. Friends, I am grateful for all the women who stood before me and for all the women who come after me. May we continue to be a place of making mountains taller. Have a wonderful week, friends, and we'll see you next week in the recovery room. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.